Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. Revelation chapter 3 verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about Patient endurance. You've kept my word. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. To try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have. So that no one may take your crown. The one who conquers. The one who overcomes. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you were to leave Sardis, we've been on this little trip up through sort of the western part of what is modern-day Turkey, which was Asia Minor at the time. So we've been kind of taking this little tour, stopping off at these sites where these churches were. And we started at Ephesus. We kind of made our way north, sort of on that western coast of Turkey. And then we sort of took a little jog east and a little bit southeast. So last place we were at was Sardis. So if you left Sardis and you went just a few miles to the southeast you would immediately realize you were in this big, long valley. These churches kind of sprinkled around this big, long valley that goes from the sea and runs up through this area. And you would come to this little place. You work your way up the valley and you can kind of see it there. And you would come to this small little city at the upper end of this valley. You would come to this gateway. Not a literal gateway. But you would come to this little city that sits there at the upper end of the valley. And this city is the gateway to the east. Because as you make your way from the sea and make your way up through this valley, there's there's a huge plateau, which is the main landmass that this little city, Philadelphia, sits as a gateway to. So you would go through the city of Philadelphia and you would go out onto this huge plateau which is in the east. It was the gateway to the east. It was not a military stronghold, so when you looked at it, when you came up on it, you would look at it and think, well, this doesn't look to be a very significant city. 
It's not like Sardis, because when you first saw Sardis, you went, wow, no one can take this city. But you remember, it was taken. And you remember what, how it was taken. It was taken twice, and they were asleep, and they came up where they weren't expecting them to come up, and they took the city. So Jesus says to the church, be watchful, be awake. As you look at Philadelphia, you would see and you would think, this doesn't look like a, a real significant city. Certainly not some military stronghold. In fact, it uh, kind of looks pretty vulnerable. The way it's situated in the valley and there, and you would think, ah, man, it's pretty vulnerable. But as you looked and studied and learned about the history of the city, you would go, wow, no, this looks vulnerable. But you know, this city's been pretty, pretty resilient throughout the years. The city was founded in 140 B.C. It was founded by a king of Pergamos. His name was Italus II. He became known as Philadelphus. Now, if you know anything about the word Philadelphia, it means brotherly love. He became known for this because of his love that uh, he had for Eumenes, who was his brother. And it was a well-known story about the love that he had for his brother. And so he became known as Philadelphus. So thus the city became Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. The interesting thing about the city of Philadelphia, it was founded as a missionary city. Now, not a Christian missionary city. We're talking about the days before Christ if you go back and look at the history of this time, 140 B.C., and even before that with, with, with a guy by the name of Alexander the Great, a couple of hundred years before this, one of the things Alexander the Great, as he's conquering the world, one of the things Alexander the Great was known for was he was called an apostle of Hellenism. Now, let me just briefly say this about Hellenism. Hellenism was the Greek way of life. It was speaking the Greek language, it was thinking like a Greek, it was getting into the philosophies, and it was, it was as Alexander the Great rolled through and conquered the world, he wanted to turn people basically into Greeks. And he did, he accomplished this, he was, he was, he was brilliant at it. Well, Philadelphia was founded as a missionary city several hundred years after the time of Alexander the Great, and it was founded as this missionary city as a gateway to the east and it was a gateway for the spread of the Greek way of life. That's what they were known for. It was a great trade route. It was also a route of communication during the Roman times. If you wanted to get messages uh, to the east from this area, from the sea or so forth, and you wanted to get messages to the east, you went through Philadelphia. I mean, it was literally in a lot, a lot of ways like a gateway. I was thinking about, and Philadelphia was nowhere near the city of, say, New York. I was thinking about, you know, you remember the days of Ellis Isle? Remember how that was kind of a gateway to this country? People came to this country. The immigrants came to this country. They all went through that, and then they spread out throughout. Uh, Philadelphia was kind of that way. It was, it was a gateway to the east, and it was a missionary city. It was full of pagan worship. Full of pagan worship. And as with all these cities and all, especially during Roman times, you would have seen probably some emperor worship there. You would have seen the worship of all kinds of pagan gods and so forth. But there's something about Philadelphia. There was a large, strong, very militant Jewish nationalist group that was in Philadelphia. This comes up in this letter. And they persecuted the Christians. They hated the Christians. 
And they had a very strong hold in the city of Philadelphia. Another thing that's interesting about Philadelphia, and you kind of see this in what Jesus says to this church, it was known for earthquakes, many earthquakes. In 17 AD, there was an earthquake that just devastated Philadelphia. In fact, you read the history of that, and you read some of the eyewitness accounts of that, and they talk about how after the main earthquake, now I've never been in an earthquake, well, small one. Remember we had one, you know, a few years ago. I remember being in Louisville, and there was a one sitting there, in, in, but nothing like this. I mean, those were sort of minor tremors. But I have talked to people that were in earthquakes. I talked to somebody that was in that, what was it, 1999, the earthquake in San Francisco, we were in Wyoming, there was a, a couple that went through that. And I just remember them describing the terror of being in that earthquake. One thing that you think is solid is the ground, right? And all of a sudden, that's not solid. I mean, what are you going to do? And one of the things that you do in an earthquake, or at least I've been told, never been in the situation, but you don't want to stay inside, do you? Because when this place starts shaking, the first thing you think is get out. Well, in 17 AD, this, de this earthquake devastated Philadelphia. The people moved out of the city and they stayed in huts for a long period of time. They were scared to death to go back in the city. And there were aftershocks and so forth, and they were just scared to death. And so they moved out of the city, lived in these huts. The Roman emperor Tiberius rebuilt the city. He did something interesting. When he rebuilt the city, he named it, uh, the new Caesar, the new Kaiser. It, this name didn't stick for long, but Philadelphia was known as the new Kaiser, sort of after Tiberius. That name kind of goes away, but uh, Tiberius rebuilt the city after the earthquake. Later, another Roman emperor, Vespasian, he named the city Flavia. That name didn't stick long either. So you have this city... You have people who live in constant fear of some natural disaster. Is another earthquake going to hit? There's four interesting things about Philadelphia that we didn't see and we won't see with Laodicea, but there's four interesting things. One, I've already mentioned, it's a missionary city. The other cities didn't have this reputation of being a missionary city. One that's sending out people. And again, remember, at the time, it's, we're not talking Christian missions here. Okay? They were missionaries for the Greek way of life. And the other thing is that the people lived in constant fear. They were in constant fear, not of being overtaken, not of being overrun by an invading tribe or whatever. They lived in constant fear of natural disasters. It happened. 17 AD, devastating one. So they lived in constant fear of natural disasters. The other thing about Philadelphia is that they take on this new name. The city takes on a new name. We don't see this in the other cities that we've looked at where these churches are. And so you have this dynamic with this city, Philadelphia. And this comes through as Christ writes this letter to these church or to this church and some of the things that he says to the church. And situated in the city is this little church. First glance at the church, you don't think, wow, this is not a great, growing, thriving church. In fact, when you look at this church from the outside and you would see this group of people, you think, man, they're kind of weak. They don't have large building. They don't have huge budget. You know, the people are really aren't sort of like movers and shakers in Philadelphia. They, they look kind of vulnerable here. 
they look kind of weak. But then again, as you would look and see, and particularly when we see what Christ says about this church, he says nothing bad about it. Not that it's perfect, but he mentions nothing bad. One of the two churches that he says nothing bad about. And you begin to look, and you look at what Christ says. Yeah, they may look weak and vulnerable, but guess what? They're a pretty strong group. They're a pretty strong group. They have been given a great opportunity. And not only have they been given this great opportunity, they've been, great, they've been given some great motivation about what it is that they are to do. Think about that just for a minute. Opportunity and motivation. I mean, have you ever had these, these great opportunities that just kind of fall in your lap? Maybe a job, maybe this or that. It's just this great opportunity and... You're trying to, you know, do I do it, do I not do it? And then you look for the motivation to be able to do it. This is one thing about working with students. You try to tell them the opportunities that they have in front of them. Half the time they don't believe you. They just look at you like you're crazy. And you're like, you don't understand the opportunities that you have in front of you. Man, you got the whole world in front of you. And they're like, uh, you know, but you know, the economy, you know, this and that, and all this, you know, terrorism. You know, they come up with all these, and you're trying to, mo- you're trying to constantly motivate them. What's probably the greatest motivator in our society now? It's probably money, right? I'm looking for an opportunity to make the most money I can. Well, you know, a lot of times where that motive leads, right? Yeah, you can make a lot of money, but you may not be fulfilled and so forth. Well, we could, t- we could talk forever about that. But opportunity and motivation. I want you to go to Acts chapter 16 just a second. I want to show you this with the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, verse 6. Paul is going into Macedonia. This is where... When he writes to the Corinthians, this is where they were located. And so verse 6, it says this, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So the Holy Spirit stops them from preaching the gospel in Asia. When they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Hey, we're going here? No, you're not. We're going here? No, you're not. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Verse 9, chapter 16, verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there. So he sees this vision. This man standing there, urging him and saying... Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. We wanted to go here? No. What was it? Closed door. We wanted to go here? Nah, you're not going there. What was it? Closed door. And then Paul sees a vision and there's a huge door wide open. You need to go there. And so that's what he did. In fact, when he writes to the Corinthians, making your way back to Revelation, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 
This is what he says about this. He's writing to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 12, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. This door opened. And then he goes on in verse 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. In other words, this door, this opportunity, Paul sees and what he tells the Corinthians is when I came to you, he says particularly in the first letter, when I came to you, I didn't come with all these flowery words. I came for one reason. This opportunity was opened up so that I'd come preach the gospel. They believed, churches planted, And there we go. Opportunity. Motivation. What was his motivation? Well, he tells the Corinthians, my motivation was to preach the gospel. Well, here's the question. And I think it's a question that that gets raised out of this letter to Philadelphia. What opportunities before us? What door's there? There's one there. We may see it, we may not see it. If we're so wrapped up in our own agendas, we miss it. Well, what door's open there? What door's open for us? And, and let's look at it on two levels. What door personally is open to you? Right now, what's open? What door for us as a church is open? And you realize it may close. But there's one we're going to find out in just a second who controls all that. Government does not control that. Satan does not open and shut. Man cannot open and shut. So what doors open? And furthermore, what motivation is there? What motivation for me personally? What motivation for us as a church? Now again, this is the second to the last church, the church in Philadelphia, this little church sitting there, again, if you looked at it, you'd think, man, they're not, they don't seem to be this great, mighty, powerful church, but man, they were. They were. Looks are deceiving sometimes, right? So let's look at the first thing, the opportunity that's laid before them. Beginning in verse 7, he starts this letter the same way that he starts the other ones. He says, Unto the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. It's an imperative, write. Now notice the description here, the words of the Holy One. There's an article there. So it's not just like words of a Holy One, as if there are many Holy Ones. No, these are the words, this is who's speaking to you, it's the words of the Holy One. The only true Holy One. And then he uses the word true, the true One. The righteous One, perfect One, the true One, the faithful One. And then here comes this phrase, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut. If he opens it, nobody can shut it. Who shuts, and it doesn't matter what you do, you can't open it. 
Now, where in the world would, would John get this? Or where, where is Jesus pulling this? It appears, and it seems pretty clear, and in the book of Revelation, while there's not a lot of Old Testament quotes, there's tremendous amount of Old Testament allusions. And this is one of those. And I think where Jesus is getting this is he's addressing the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David. It seems to come straight out of Isaiah chapter 22. Out of Isaiah chapter 22, there was an assistant to the king, Shebna. And he's being replaced. And Isaiah says, you're being replaced. And there's a guy by the name of Elohim who's going to replace you. And in the process of talking about this Elohim replacing He makes reference in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, about how Elohim is going to receive this key. Now, the interesting thing is when it's this description of Jesus, he who opens and no one will shut, he who shuts and no one opens. It's the same wording that's used of Elohim after it said that God says, I'm going to put the key on his shoulder. The obvious implication of that is, as an assistant to the king, he controls who sees the king, who does not get to see the king. He controls everything. He is the access to the king. Jesus borrows from this, takes this out of Isaiah, and he says this of himself. I'm the one who has the key of David. What's interesting is this, this is taken from chapter 1, just like all of these descriptions of Christ, except in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, I have the key, or when John sees him, he has the keys to Hades. He has the keys to death and Hades. Here, it's the key of David. It's the key of David. I think there's probably a lot going on with this imagery that's being used here. One, I think, definitely is access to the king. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except what? Through me. All of the blessings that the King bestows, how are they bestowed on us? Through Christ. Everything that we have, everything that we have, How is it given to us? Through Christ. It's tremendous what Jesus is saying here about Himself. The one who opens, and there's nobody that can shut it. When He opens that door and access to the Father, not even your own stubborn, sinful heart can shut that. Because when he begins to draw and work, he will break your resistance. If your mind is running very fast and running ahead just a little bit, when he shuts that door, you get the implication? Well, the opportunity that he mentions begins in verse 8. He says to this church, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. I have set before you an open door. You couldn't open it. You didn't put this door there. You didn't create this door. 
You didn't sit around and have meeting after meeting and have conference after conference. You didn't have write books about how you can open doors and what open doors. You didn't do any of that. What happened was I sovereignly, in my providence, placed before you this open door. Remember, the one who opens and no one shuts. I have opened this door. And the way the language reads, the tense of the verbs that are used here, this perfect tense... It's not, he's not saying, I am opening a door. It's there. It's open. This is done. And it can have long-term implications. So he says, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And he says, I know... I know, I know completely. Again, same language we've seen with the other churches. I know that you have but little power. I know that. Earthly speaking, when humanly speaking, you have little power. I mean, my gosh, you've opened a door. We're looking, we don't even know. Do we even have the strength? Do we have the resources? Do we have the finances? Do we have that? Can we? I know you have little power. That's not the issue. The issue is not whether or not you look and see, do we have the strength and resources enough to do what it is you're calling us to do? That's not the issue. He gives and He is everything we need. Both personally and as a church. So I know that you have little power and yet you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. We've seen this before. Were they persecuted? Yeah, there's persecution here. And it's coming from the Jews again. But you know what? You've kept my word. You've not denied my name, my word, my name. You didn't pursue your own agendas. You were, you were hot after me. And verse 9, he says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, this is an interesting thing that he says to this church. You don't have much. But you know what? These Jews, these Jewish nationalists that have been persecuting you, that hate you, and maybe they're saying something like this. Maybe they're using Isaiah. Maybe they're using the language of key of David, being, ah, we have the key to the kingdom of God. And therefore, if you're ever going to come to the kingdom of God, then you need to become as we are. Forget this Messiah, Jesus stuff. I don't know. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe that's why Jesus uses this language. But notice he calls them a synagogue of Satan. We've already seen this in chapter 2, verse 9, with another church where he referred to them as a synagogue of Satan. They're not good people. They're not right. Don't listen to them. Don't play around with them. They're threatening you. They're persecuting you. They claim they can shut you out of the kingdom of heaven. Guess what? They don't have the key. They don't have the key. I am the one who opens and shuts this access or closes this access, not them. And what's interesting, he says, listen, they're going to know. You're going to be fully vindicated one day. You're going to be vindicated because they're going to come and they're going to bow down before you. They're going to bow down before your, your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. Oh, how have you loved us? Prophet Malachi, chapter 1. 
God says, I've loved you. And the people respond, how have you loved us? And he says, I chose you. You're in Christ. You are saved. Is there a greater demonstration of my love for you than that I saved you from your sin? That I saved you? That I sent you a Savior for God so loved the world that He did what? Is there any greater indication? Is there any greater display of the love of God there? They're going to come, these Jewish nationalists who hate you, who have persecuted you, they're going to come, they're going to bow down before you. They're going to bow down at your feet. And they're going to learn that I've loved you. You are the, I have set my affection upon you. You are the one. This is amazing, it's tremendous, because it's, it's, it's a complete reversal of what we see in the Old Testament. It's a complete reversal of that. Places like Isaiah chapter 45 verse 14. What does God say to the Jews? He says the world's going to come to you. These Gentiles, they're going to come bow down before you. What does he say in chapter 49 verse 23? A prophet Isaiah says they're going to come bow down before you. Again, chapter 60 verse 14. They're going to come bow down before you. This is a complete reversal of what we see in the Old Testament. And we don't have time to play this out. We don't have time to go through and look and trace this all the way through. But what is ringing in our ears at this point is what Paul says in Romans chapter 2 about what it is to be a true Jew. And a true Jew is not the one who's who's outwardly a Jew. It's the one who is inwardly a Jew. Now, in the new covenant, it is the one in whom by God's grace the heart's been changed and they've come to Christ. The issue then is when they come and bow down, is this for salvation? Are they going to come and be saved? The language doesn't seem to indicate that. Will there be Jews saved as we get closer to the end? Yeah, I think there will be. The Romans 9, 10, and 11. In fact, I think the church is going to become much more Jewish, maybe just like the first part of Acts, than it is now. But they're going to come through Christ. They're going to come through Christ. Or is he speaking of judgment here? They're going to come bow down. It's Philippians. Paul says every knee will bow. Right? Every knee's going to bow. Every tongue's going to do what? And you'll do it willingly? Out of love and devotion? Or you're going to do it acknowledging that he was right? And you were wrong. I don't know either way here, whether it's for the salvation or judgment, but the thing that he's saying here is that they're going to learn that I have loved you. I've set my affection upon you. It's tremendous what he's telling this church in Philadelphia. Look, guys, you don't have a lot, but you know what you do have? You've got my love. You know what you do have? You have my smile. I'm pleased with you. I'm pleased with you. This great opportunity that he set before them, this open door. Now again, remember, Philadelphia is a missionary city. Gateway city. 
You see how he's taking what is in, 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 in what was known about the city and the history of the city, and he's he's sort of incorporating this into what he's saying to the church. And here you are in this great missionary city, and yet you, you, these this small little group of little power Christians, this little church, I've set before you a door. I've set before you a door. Now I think the obvious implication. And then we take in the whole of the New Testament. The door that's been opened is to spread the gospel. It's not to spread the Greek way of life. It's to go preach Christ. It's to go preach Him. Well, quickly, let's look at the motivation here. Because the opportunity has been set by Christ. He opened this door. And then verse 10, he says, because... And I think, I think maybe we see three kind of motivating factors here. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance... You, 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 you've persevered. You've kept my word of perseverance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is to come, that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. The, the first thing is this protection that we see. I'm going to protect you. You've kept my word. I'm going to protect you. Now, I do have to say this about verse 10. When he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Okay, And again, we don't have the time to go through and unpack this completely. I will say this. There's one of two ways that people normally take verse 10, especially when he says, I will keep you from. One way that this is taken is to say that what Jesus is going to do is physically remove them. And this is generally used when it comes to things like the rapture. And there are some who would say this verse here points to the fact that what Jesus is promising is physical removal from this trial. And the way that he describes this trial here, that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So in other words, when we get to the tribulation time in the end, then what Jesus is going to do is physically remove the church, physically remove the people of God. That could be the the preposition ek here from is used that way sometimes. The other way to take it is that it's not necessarily physically removed, but it's being preserved through the trial. You remember Daniel, three Hebrew children? They weren't physically removed from the furnace. They were preserved how? Through the furnace. In fact, Jesus was in there with them. And so those are are two options there. And, and we could go to places like John chapter 17 and Jesus' prayer there about verse 15 when he's talking about Jesus is praying, keep them from the evil one. And there's the preposition again. And is the from there that, well, it doesn't seem that the apostles are physically inside Satan. And so he's talking about preserving them from an outside position in the sphere of Satan, so, so to speak. Or the from being there that they are in the world but not of the world and Therefore, Satan shouldn't be influencing them and so forth. So we could spend some time tracing this preposition. I'll only say this. This verse does not settle the timing of the rapture. This verse does not settle whether the church will be present in the tribulation or not present in the tribulation. In fact, if you take the overall flow of the book of Revelation and the overall flow of Scripture, and particularly the New Testament, it seems to be The indication seems to be that what God is promising is to preserve us through all of this. But this verse doesn't settle that. Okay, 
So it's not a proof text to say, okay, well, we will be in the tribulation or we won't be in the tribulation. That's, that's all I'll say about that now. Maybe we'll go into that later. But because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So there's this promise of protection. Here's another one, verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Don't let anyone take your crown from you. Don't let them take this crown. I'm coming fast. There's this great hope that's here. I'm coming. Stand fast. I mean, if you're holed up in a foxhole somewhere fighting for your life and trying to hold back the enemy and you get word, hey, reinforcements are coming, doesn't that give you a little hope? Well, guess what? Not just reinforcements are coming. (laughs) The king of kings is coming. He's going to make a grand entrance one day. You just hold fast here. Hold the fort. And then there's this mention of rewards, that, that verse uh, 12. The one who overcomes, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Remember the earthquakes? The earthquakes? One of the things that they said after 17 AD, the, the, the buildings are destroyed and so forth, but you could see pillars everywhere. You'd see these columns. You don't have to, and and notice what he says here too, I will make you a pillar, you're going to be a pillar in the temple of my God, never shall he go out of it. You're not going to have to leave the city and live in huts anymore. You're not going to have to flee the city anymore. You're going to be a pillar, strength, strong. Nothing's going to shake you. It's tremendous. What he's saying to them, this is, this, is, this is a reward here. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And my own new name. What is this? I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. I'm no longer a rebellious sinner. God has changed me. God has transformed me from the inside out. And I am now a follower of Christ. This is security. The reward of this security, this eternal security, I think is wrapped up in what he's saying here. So the the opportunity, I I have opened this door. I've placed an open door there. Here's some motivating factors. You're going to be protected. There's great hope here. And there's great rewards. And you 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 need to get busy. You need to go for it. Okay? Because I'm going to look out for you. Don't worry. Don't try to figure out if you have enough strength. Don't try to figure out if you have the money to do it. Just obey. You obey, it'll be there. You obey, the resources will be there. We, we, we don't sit down and build up resources and then say, okay, God, open a door. That's just not the way He works. He opens the door and then we scratch our head and say, I see no way. I don't know how. This, this is impossible. We, don't, we can't do this. And bam, there He is. Everything we need, there it is. This is true on two levels. This is true on a personal level. This is true for us as a church. 
On a personal level, there is a door that's open to you every single day you get up. There is a door open to you. What motivates you? What should be the motivating factor there? We're going to look at another something Paul says here in just a second about that. But there is a door open. Sometimes it's a great door. Sometimes it's a good door. Sometimes it's a door we can't wait to go through. Sometimes it's a door and we go, wow, I can't believe the good. I can't believe the blessing. Sometimes that door that's open, we look at it and go, oh my gosh, I cannot believe this has happened to me. Whether it's the burning of a house and losing your family. Whether it's a wife walking in and saying, I'm done, I'm through, I love you no more. Whether it's a husband who decides that someone is better looking and nicer and runs off. Whether it's a doctor who walks in and says, this is it. It is a door open. And who opens and who shuts? It is Christ who opened that door. Why in the world would He do that? It's so that we can proclaim His glory. In the good or the bad. In the good or the bad. That's true of us as a church as well. It's true of us as a church. Every day is an opportunity for us as a church. You realize we're as much the church as we're scattered throughout everywhere, wherever we go during the week, right? And so those doors that open for us as a church, they open for you. You see? It's not like there's a big door on Highway 22. And we funnel everybody through that door on Highway 22 and pop, they pop in here. Those doors are opening for you personally every day. Every day. I want you to go to Philippians. Let's close with this. Actually, I want to look at Philippians in another place. Because the opportunities are there, then what needs to be the motivation here? What should motivate us? This is what Paul says. And this is not just for super saints. This is for all of us. This is what he says towards the end of the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4 verse 10. Philippians 4, verse 10. He says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Philippians were, they were worried about Paul. Paul's persecuted everywhere he went. Paul, you know, and he says, I understand your concern. But he says this in verse 11. He says, but you need to understand this. Not that I am speaking of being in need. For I have learned, hear the language? I have learned It didn't come naturally. Paul wasn't converted on the Damascus Road and this was already there and all he had to do was just pop it out and use it. I have learned in whatever situation 
good, bad, whatever situation, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Sometimes the greatest, deepest, most hurtful, painful, sorrowful need you can imagine. But yet I also know what it's like to be on the mountaintop. And to see the tremendous blessings of God. And then he says in verse 13, I can do all things through Him who what? You need motivation? I don't know what the door is. Personally, for you, I don't. I'm not quite sure as a church, but we need to be seeking and looking, don't we? I think we have some ideas, maybe. But we need to be seeking, we need to be looking, and we need to be praying. And we need to understand the motivating when it becomes clear that I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. I love what he says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he's talking about the love of Christ, the love that Christ had for Him. You remember what he says to the church at Philadelphia? They're going to learn. They're going to learn that I have loved you. This love, Paul says this kind of love is what compels me. It's what in the King James it says constrains me. It compels me. It's what motivates me. The love that Christ has for me. How are you going to face it? Just sit down and think, read your Bible, and think and meditate on the love that Christ has for you. How did He love me? He gave Himself for me, right? Died on a cross. That's how much He loved me. Wasn't His sins, it was mine. He took my place on the cross. He died as my substitute. He died in my place. I can do anything. I can face anything. I can take on anything. I can take on things that those who do not know Christ would be crushed under. I can deal with things that those who do not know Christ would give up in an instant. I can take on and do all things And I can take on and go through any door, good or bad, that He opens through Christ who strengthens me.
You see it? Every day is a door. Every day is a door. An invitation to live to the glory of Christ. Do it. Let's do it. Let's pray together. Father, we we are humbled.